everyone. We can try it again. Good morning. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Uh, I just want to say thank you on behalf of MB Mission for the way that you partner with uh, our wider church family of Mennonite Brethren churches across Canada and the United States and actually around the world in sending uh, people from congregations like yours, like the Schultzes and John and Bonnie, uh, to different parts of this, this globe uh, that God has made and loved. And so thank you, and you can you know, it's been encouraging to me this morning to see how uh, locally and globally you're involved in the mission of God. So thanks so much. Uh, my, my role is to work, uh, work with the team of people who oversee the training of all our new workers and uh, the team health of our workers around the world. And I'm very new to MB Mission. I was pastoring in Surrey before that. And so I want to thank you as well as the congregation because you have facilitated my very first person in-person meeting with John. Uh, I have never met John in, uh, in person before. We've met through, uh, through uh, email. So it's just great to meet John and have a chance to chat with him this morning and uh, celebrate them. So uh, thanks for the way that you have blessed me already. You know, I don't, I don't know how, how this goes for you, but in, in my life I realize there are many different things I have needed to unlearn as I've grown. Uh, you know, one, of the, one, one was that somehow I w- had no racist bone in my body. I had this understanding of myself that surely I did not look down on other people or think differently about another person because of the color of their skin or something like that. Uh, and then I remember being at this party as a teenager where I met a man uh, who was from Africa and he was an accomplished athlete, he was a Christian and we had a great conversation but later at that same party I was with a group of my friends, all of us, you know, white, Caucasian and uh, I thought I was funny, I told a joke that had the black guy in the joke as the punchline. I thought I was, I thought I was just being funny. This new friend, however, over here overheard the conversation overheard the joke. He comes over, he puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, listen, you should get to know Bill Cosby. He's really funny. Now, those were before the days Bill Cosby had his own non-funny issues made public. But in that day, when I'm a teenager, Bill Cosby's like the comedian, right? And I was put in my place and the table of my friends just goes like, silent. (laughs) Phil's been Phil's been trumped. And uh, I knew something I didn't realize lived in my heart. How did that get there? I didn't think it was there. You see, like it or not, I had come to some conclusions about the world as I saw it and needed to be challenged and unlearned. Do you have any of those? I bet you do. The truth is that all of us, through how we've been raised or what we've experienced, have come to accept certain things, realities, and we live by some pride or prejudice that needs to be undone, undone, unlearned, and challenged by God's grace. So look at our little condiment world map up there. What are your assumptions about the world? Have you ever visited South Salsa? How about vodka? Any of you been to vodka? Oh, better be careful about that one. Um, there's Nutella. Anyone been to Nutella? See, we, we have these stereotypes about the world, right? We look at the world and we make certain assumptions about certain places that that's where these things come from and where they go. I love that area of ranch. 
somewhere down in the southern United States and that the Caribbean just doesn't have anything. I'm not quite sure how that landed. So uh, one of the greatest things you see that holds us back from joining God in his mission in our world, no matter where that is, and being fully alive with him is the unhelpful and the wrong-headed assumptions that we have learned. In some way, they've become part of us. We're all products of what's been poured into us. So can you do some heart work with me this morning? Can you, you know, in this room, in this place where you're sitting, could you search your heart and just enter into this? Because we all have things to unlearn if we are to live life as God intended. If we are to be increasingly transformed and freed from our bondages and join God in bringing his wild hope to the world. Because the gospel of Jesus confronts every human assumption. The gospel of Jesus comes into our lives and it confronts every assumption that we have made previously. The truth of God will stop you in your tracks and rattle your cage. The kingdom that Jesus seeks to set up in the hearts of people like you and I is an invading presence. And if it has not felt that way to you, then I would ask whether you have actually encountered the gospel, which is an encountering, invading, confronting presence to the world which we have assumed it to be. To learn the language of another culture takes a lot of time. And so you can talk, talk with John and Bonnie about how that goes. What is the process like of learning a new language, learning new culture, learning new idioms, learning new ways of thinking? Some of you have done that if you've moved here. Others of you have learned a language in some way and you've gone somewhere and you've realized that everything you learned in French grade 9 did not exactly translate into uh, Trois-Rivières. Right? And so you have this reality that comes. And so the learning of a new language and a new culture takes a lifetime picking up those nuances. And it's the same thing with your growth in the kingdom of heaven. Whether it feels like you're deciding to follow Jesus was a small step. So for instance, you grew up in a church setting and then you kind of walked away and did your own thing and somehow through some circumstance, life mishap, something got your attention and you've come back to Jesus and you've come back to the church. That really ends up being a bit of a small step, really, because you're kind of coming home. For others of you, perhaps coming to Jesus was actually like a cross-cultural leap because for many years in your life, you actually believed Christians were raging lunatics. And so if you've come out of a story like that and you've seen the life of Jesus and now you're being enveloped into his family around this world in a beginning in a local context, well, that is actually a huge cross-cultural leap because you're learning languages and ways of doing things that are totally foreign and different. So to learn the language of heaven takes a lifetime of unlearning. Unlearning the assumptions about life you once had to take on the character and heart of God through Jesus Christ. That is actually the process of discipleship. That's the process of holiness, becoming more and more like Jesus. Unlearning what you once knew for what God says to be true. You understand? This is the journey you're on with God. And so, dare you ask the questions this morning of entering this little murky water of allowing your assumptions to be challenged and what that means to be living on mission with God right here or around the world. God builds his kingdom through a community of people 
who are willing to wade into these waters. We're going to visit two um, significant examples of that from the book of Acts. So if you have your scriptures, open to Acts chapter 9 and just hang on there. I'm going to set the stage for where we're heading. Um, By the time we get to the end of Acts chapter 8, there's been this significant shift already that has happened in the life of God's church and in the advance of his kingdom in the world. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus said to his disciples, When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So it's kind of like saying you'll be my witnesses in Chilliwack, the western provinces, and the ends of the earth. Okay? So it's this expansion of the work of the Spirit through God's people. Well, by the end of Acts chapter 8, what has actually happened, if you look at it, is that Philip has brought an Ethiopian eunuch, a government official from Ethiopia, to Christ, introduced him to Jesus. So in many ways, actually, by the time you get to the end of Acts chapter 8, the church has seen the promise of Jesus become true. In these microcosm stories, you have gone from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and all the way to Africa. So it's this incredible journey. And then as we enter Acts chapter 9 something incredible happens. You see, if Jesus was serious about reaching the ends of the earth, then it was only a matter of time before the assumptions of the Jewish nation, and remember that the church grew out of Israel. And so by the end of Acts chapter 8, even though an Ethiopian eunuch has now come to know Jesus, the reality is that the church is primarily made up of Jews and the way that they see the world. What should we eat? What should we look like? What should we do? What are we involved in? It's a a Jewish mind that is shaping the way the church understands itself. It couldn't be otherwise. But if Jesus is going to reach the ends of the earth, it's going to be only a matter of time before those assumptions are challenged and an unlearning is going to have to take place. And a massive unlearning is about to burst uh, upon the disciples of Jesus. Now, one thing you have to understand is that the whole Jewish story is a process of unlearning. They were called out of the other nations, the chosen people, and they are constantly, through the Old Testament, called by God to unlearn every assumption they have made. That's actually the picture that they are to the rest of us. They're this holy community who are continually unlearning the practices of the world in light of the commands and life and love and grace and mercy and justice and righteousness of God. And so when they track with that, things seem to go well as they keep unlearning, right? But when they forget to do that and go back to their old assumptions, things fall apart. And when God wants to change that, generally what he does is he sends along someone who wakes them up. At each moment of trouble, God will do what he always does. He sends someone. Because God's commodity of change is a man or woman with a captured heart. God's commodity of change is a man or a woman with a captured heart. Now, how many of you have ever tried to teach your grandparents social media? Okay, this is in no way meant to mock uh, grandparents because actually that kind of is what it looked like when we tried to teach my parents how to Skype with our grandkids. Like, what's going on here? I don't understand. So, listen, what is it that would invade a grandparent's heart to the extent that they would abandon every learning they once had to learn social media in order to communicate with their grandkids? Love. Right? 
Their hearts so captured by their family that they are willing to unlearn what was and learn something new in order to communicate and stay in touch, right? It's actually a profoundly beautiful thing. And that's kind of what it looks like at the beginning stages. And this is what happens when the Holy Spirit grabs hold of us. When God captures our hearts, we begin to unlearn the world that we thought was and begin to learn the new ways of the kingdom of God. And so we're living actually in a time where this is very ripe, even within our culture. Because we have seen images of a two-year-old boy lying on a Turkish beach. And the world is asking, what do we have to unlearn? Right? So what is the opportunity and the responsibility of the disciples of Jesus in a world asking that question? It is to surrender ourselves and say, God, we will unlearn whatever it takes. We will free ourselves from those things that have have bound us, the assumptions and the prides and the prejudices that have kept us from being your people. We'll enter into this, Lord. We'll enter in. Show us where to even begin. And so, the story all the way up through the Old Testament is God's people learning this, unlearning their old assumptions. And the same thing is now going to happen to the church in Acts chapter 9. And this leads us there into the story of Saul and Ananias, who are both unlearning who is friend and foe and what God is up to, that God is up to something new in the world. Now, we met Saul, if you've read the book of Acts or want to go home and do it. In Acts chapter 7, we meet this guy named Saul who is, at the, who is giving his consent to the death of Stephen, one of the disciples of Jesus. He's stoned to death and Saul's quite happy about it. And he's from the tribe of Benjamin. He is a Jew of, Jew and Philippi, Jew of Jews. In Philippians chapter 3, he describes how he saw himself thoroughly and completely Jewish in the most legalistic tra- tradition of what that could possibly mean. That was Saul. He's born a Roman citizen, though, in Tarsus, in modern-day Turkey, but far from the Promised Land. And then he came to uh, uh, the Palestine, into Israel, and grew to be this incredible, passionate, religious fanatic, to the point that he is seeking the government, of the, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council's authority to go find Christians no matter where they are and drag them back to Jerusalem, persecute them, even kill them. And Paul is on, or Saul, he will become Paul. Saul in Acts chapter 9 is on his way to Damascus, modern day Syria, which we hear in the news. He's on his way there in order to find Christians there in order to bring back to Jerusalem. And and pull back any of those who have abandoned the Jewish law. Look at what happens in chapter chapter 9, verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city that you will, and you will be told what to do. 
Saul's not easily stopped. It takes light from heaven to stop him. And he ends up in Damascus on a, uh, in a house of a guy named Judas where he's told by God that he will wait until such time as somebody comes and talks to him. He gives himself to prayer. He's in a tomb of darkness. He doesn't understand what's going on. The wise one has become the one whose assumptions have been confronted. And in Damascus, where Christians no doubt hear that Saul is on the rampage and on his way to get them, one member of the church was about to face unlearning as well. His name's Ananias. Look at verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, brutally blunt, right? And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. Thank you, Lord, for pointing out my name to the persecutor. Thumbs up, Holy Spirit. Right? How would you feel if you're Ananias? You have a vision from the Lord, and the Lord says, I've told the persecutor about you. Lord, are you on my side or his? Where is this going? Verse 12, and he's seen a vision named Ananias, of a guy named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might see, might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call your name. His, his agenda is not hidden. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And I'm sure Ananias said, could I help? (laughs) No. Listen, if if you're in the place of Ananias and you're following the logic of God, you would say, okay, we know the Gentiles, you know, we're in Syria, they need Jesus. And we know that the Gentiles need Jesus. And so, of course, God would send the Jew of Jews and Hebrew of Hebrews and the guy who is the most strict, legalistic, persecuting person to reach to the Gentiles. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? It makes no sense. We're not that smart. This is God's plan. His commodity, to, uh, to, his commodity of change in the world is somebody like you with a captured heart and he will surprise you and teach you and you will go through a series of unlearning because he has plans greater than you have. And Ananias goes to Saul, lays hands on him and in that place these two brothers are brought together. Look at verse 17. Ananias departed, entered the house, laying his hands on him. He said two great words. What are they? Brother Saul. Brother. Listen, if you want to grow in the ways of God and unlearn your old assumptions for the language of the kingdom of heaven, it begins actually with obedience to Jesus, not piling a whole bunch of information in your head. When Jesus says, go, respond, and you will learn the kingdom of heaven. You will learn the inbreaking power of God. You will learn to trust him more and more. If you're going to depend on what you can cram into your cranium, it's not going to work because you won't go. And Ananias has said, you got to unle- God says to Ananias, you've got to unlearn, you've got to go. Okay, God, I go. And Ananias has this amazing privilege of seeing God take the scales off Saul, who will become Paul, who will write so much of our New Testament and remind us in this room that the kingdom of heaven and in the kingdom of God there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female, all are one in Christ Jesus. That's Saul who wrote that. It's incredible. 
which opens up the door to Acts chapter 10. And the next series of learning, Peter and Cornelius are unlearning who God accepts and what God's acceptance means. Now Peter, of course, had been with Jesus from the beginning. He's also thoroughly Jewish. Fisherman. Not schooled like Paul, like Saul Paul, but deeply ingrained in a Jewish mindset and understanding. And he comes at Pentecost, he's a leader of the church. He does some jail time even for preaching about Jesus. Saul had been born in the Gentile world in Tarsus in modern day Turkey. Peter grew up in, the, in Palestine. That, that's all he knew. That's the world as he knew it. And in Caesarea, which is the was the center of the Roman occupation of the Holy Land, there's this Roman centurion named Cornelius, and he's a God-fearer. He's somebody who's actually come to believe that the God of the Jews exists. And he's a prayerful guy, and he gives money. He's generous. He's a philanthropist. And he's a Gentile. And he's praying, and when he's praying, one day the Holy Spirit shows up, and he says, go send some guys to a guy named Peter. He even gives the address. And the city... Why is God has a great GPS? Right? He knows right where we are. And so uh, Cornelius responds and does what the Spirit shows him to do. Meanwhile, Peter has just finished at the end of Acts chapter 9 raising somebody from the dead. Okay? There's spiritual highs and then there's raising somebody from the dead. Right? Like you're going to fly a little bit after that, right? Like God showed up. Okay? So Peter, coming off that, is kind of taking a rest and a prayer time on the roof of this friend's place when he has a vision. And in this vision, a sheet comes down from the heavens with animals in that no Jew would ever touch. We're talking peacocks and, you know, <laughs> all the things a good Chilliwack boy would never touch, right? So all these things come down and he hears the word of the Lord, Peter, kill it and eat it. And Peter's like, no, God, you have said we do not do this. And I don't know how Peter got a British accent, but he did. (laughs) So Peter is challenged to unlearn something, right? God says to him, Peter, kill and eat these things. Peter's like, that doesn't make sense. Three times it happens. One, kill and eat. Nope, kill and eat. Nope, kill and eat. Uh Uh-oh. Knock on the door. Here's Cornelius's guys. And all of a sudden, Peter, the light goes on. Now, does Peter completely rationalize this, write an essay about whether this theory should be followed through on? No, he goes. He goes along. He doesn't know this could be a trap. He gets set up in this place. He comes to Cornelius's house. Cornelius has gathered his entire household, probably including a few military personnel. Now you're Peter and your little posse of little Jewish disciples. And you walk into this room and you go, oh, yes, we're those guys. And what an incredible scene is about to take place. Chapter 10. I want to make sure I get the right verse. Verse 28. So Peter says to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit any one of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. God just revealed that to him like within a day or two. And so when I I was sent for, I came without objection and I asked then why you sent for me. (laughs) So like, what am I doing here? Like, I have no idea. I just came. 
I'm, by the way, I'm learning. By the way, I'm unlearning. By the way, we're all unlearning. Every one of us in this room, Peter could have said to this group. Now look at what happens. Cornelius' heart is soft toward God. Look at verse 42. And he, Jesus, and Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. There's no other way. Cornelius, you've been a good guy. You've prayed and you have given, but you know what? That'll never wipe away your sins, Cornelius. It's only by Jesus' name that your sins are forgiven. Cornelius, isn't that what you're actually really hungering and thirsting for? When you give your money and you spend time in prayer, you want a clean heart and it's through Jesus. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, the Jews, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on even the Gentiles. And Peter hangs out with Cornelius for two or three days. This house of a Roman centurion, the dwelling place of the Spirit of God, as Jew and Gentile unlearn their old assumptions and give themselves to the work of the Lord. Isn't it amazing? So let me ask you, what is God teaching you to unlearn? What has he confronted you with? What parts of you and the assumptions and stereotypes and the prides and prejudices are keeping you and you have allowed those things to trump God's call in your life and you've said no because this is the way we are. And God says, that's bunk. This is the way I am and I'm calling you go. What do you have to unlearn? What would that look like this week in your street or around the world? Lord, we give ourselves to you. We respond to the voice of your Holy Spirit and we rejoice that you are not in any way opposed to challenging everything we assume. Thank you that you don't leave us the way we are but you save us by grace. We don't deserve it, and you offer it. And the light goes on, and we say, now teach us, Lord. And so we surrender this morning. We surrender to be people who will unlearn and who will learn the kingdom, the language, the practices, the heart of heaven. Teach us, O God, and then send us, and may we be those who go wherever you would call us to go for your name's sake, for the glory of your kingdom, for the praise of you. We worship you. Amen.